0: Welcome to the IPv6 Buzz podcast, where we dare to dive into the 120-bit address space wormhole. Hey, as a quick reminder, there's sponsorship opportunities available for IPv6 Buzz and other Packet Pusher podcast shows. If you're interested, you can go to packetpushersnet slash sponsorship for details. And if you've got something cool working with v6, we want to hear from you. So come join us on the v6 uh, V6 Buzz podcast. I'm Ed Horley with my co-host Tom Coffey and Scott Hogue. And today we're going to be talking about IPv6 in the data center with our guest, Jeff Tensura. And uh, hey, let's jump right in. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on.
1: Thank you for having me here. And it's my pleasure. And it's great to, to be talking to you. Yeah, so thanks.
0: <laughs> so let's talk about V6 in, in the data center. I mean, is this actually a useful thing? Is this something that people should be paying attention to? Is this, you know, where, where are we at on that?
1: So definitely there, especially if you are looking at larger data centers, we see a lot of V6. And the reasons are obviously larger space. So as we've seen with Kubernetes and further segregation and kind of disaggregation of functions, we are moving into completely routed solutions. So there's very little switching, if at all, in large data centers. On another side, routing is moving to the host. So if you run in something like Kubernetes, most likely you will be routing something that's coming from Kubernetes, faster or BGP. So all of this creates significant amount of need for IP addresses that we didn't have before. Before we would have bunch of VLANs from servers to the switches, then we'll have few few thousand switches in large data center. And this is pretty much what you need to route, right? So anything could do RC 1980 space was just great here. With completely routed solution, suddenly we're talking about potentially millions of IP addresses especially when you try to go even further into something like a function as a service where every small piece of your distributed application needs to be somehow addressed. All of this drives us to need to create larger routing spaces to be able to structure them in the way they're aggregated because, as you can imagine, t and switches are limited resources, right? So eventually you run out of them In best case, you drop traffic. In worst case, you drop everything. So all of this drives us to use IPv6 in data centers. From control plane perspective, for underlay or for Unicast BGP, we have been supporting Office API 2.1 for the last 10 years. Support is solid. We're out with six really, really well. If you happen to run IGP's in data center, OSPF v 3 is there for you. I don't see it a lot in data centers. SS on another site natively supports v6 with a uh, recent addition to flood reduction and additional disaggregation of SS. As such, you could use it natively with v6, and it will work just great. So you've got market requirements to have larger address space. You've got control planes that fully supports you. And finally, we are getting hardware that can reasonably do v6 and not only SS. Layer sixty four, right? So all together it brings us into space where V six can compete and pair with before, and given all the advantages of using V six, people are finally moving to V six.
2: Yeah, that, that's... that's cool, Jeff. So one thing. You know, about IPv6 that's it's different than IPv4 is you can have well, one or more IPv6 addresses on the host. We tend to think with IPv4, a single host, an instance, a virtual machine, one at ad, 1v4 one address. One thing you could do is there's an RFC 8273 unique IPv6 prefix per host where host could get an entire prefix, probably maybe a slash 64. And, and you might be able to use that inside of that host for host isolation, micro segmentation purposes, or containers. I guess you would do that through prefix delegation with DHCPv6. Are you seeing any architectures or unique applications of giving an entire prefix, IPv6 prefix, to a host in a data center?
1: Now, the development of RFC was driven by real use case wasn't theoretical exercise right so mm-hmm. i'm not sure there's publicly available references practically mm-hmm. there's number of large very large data centers that have prefix assigned to a host and then processes using sub prefixes from uh from this total prefix so now you can address not only the host itself but you know exactly which process. Uses it, and with regards to process migration, and again things like Kubernetes, when your pods come and go, suddenly you can use it to uniquely identify pair of process plus host. Mm. So I think we are going to see more and more of this kind of deployments.
2: Yeah, that's cool. I guess it could. We tend to think of that happening through prefix delegation, but it could be part of your software automation and orchestration scripts that as you're deploying the host, you determine the next slash 64 that's available, assign that, configure BGP, you know, to advertise that prefix. So it could be done in out of method as well.
1: Exactly, and this is not the first time, if you remember five or six years ago, Akamai was talking about using unique IPv6 addresses to address different chunks of mm-hmm. videos, which is really cool use case and gives you ability to request a particular part of video without actually understanding the semantics. So you don't need something like I don't know, member-based networking to address this chunk of content uniquely. You just need unique IPv6 address. So it's hmm. somewhat similar, I would say. Hmm. You overload the semantics, but it gives you quite <laughs> some <laughs> advantages. Right. So you have some metadata
0: that's basically attached with that V6 address that allows it to to go up and do the lookup based off of where you want that video or what attributes of that video you want, right? Right. So that's really cool. And I I wanted to unpack one thing that you mentioned about the 64. You sort of made it a casual thing in the discussion around sort of performance and impacts about the 64. Do you want to go dive a little bit more detail into what that's all about and, and, and sort of where the hardware's at and why that's why that's an issue or was an issue and, and where things are going.
1: So if you look at, I know, 10 years ago, IPv6 was still a poor brother, right? It was there, but not there at the same right. time. So since it was best effort, very few large customers actually asked for v6 at scale and line rate. Most hardware implementations were actually optimized towards particular prefix length. So if you look at the internal structure, they all optimized towards F64. Whether it's uh, easy cheap, back then probably Dune, you run f 64 you get probably not, you get to line rate at about 1000 bytes packets. You try to do something like, God forbid, 128 or Suddenly it drops by 30%. So when you start looking, anything that's not slash 64 is being split and recirculated. It's not the case anymore because of proliferation of the six and customers actually complaining. And finally, we see that our routing tables not only slash 64, there are some other lengths. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this part is gone together with more slow and more cycles available and better silicon. Right. But practically, then, if you look 10 years ago, pretty much every vendor optimized towards their 64. And for the rest, I'll say, you know, we 6 will never come anyway, so who cares? Right. And
0: there, and there was big structural issues with TCAM. Really yeah, many, yeah for in, in terms of, uh, you know, non-optimized performance. So, I mean, there, there was points where, you know, even folks like us were recommending, hey, like, you know, just burn a 64 on a loopback, right? <laughs> and so don't, don't do a 128, but just use a 64 and be done with it because at least you're, depending on how your IGP was working, right, it, it could have, you know, it could have some serious impact, impacts in terms of having lots of loopback addresses within a particular topology or configuration across lots of VRFs, across lots of peering, right? Like, Starts adding up and, and and getting a little ugly, um, so yeah, that's it's great to hear that there's better optimization around that side of it and less impact. So that's very cool. You know, it's I mean, we talked a little bit about what some of the use cases and maybe once what some of that you know sort of makes sense. But you know, what what's the current status, or, the, or at least your gut feeling? I mean, you get an opportunity to work with a lot of customers. Um, you know, do you have a feel for what the current status is in terms of uptake, in terms of Size and breadth of companies that are really trying to use V6 to solve data center related problems. What what does that look like today?
1: So uh, If we are looking at uh, larger companies, what they call Tier Two hyperscalers uh, companies, I'm not mentioning customers, but companies of size of right now, LinkedIn, eBay, and such. Right, most of them are already using V6 for a variety of reasons because they had right people, people who understood V6 and willing were willing to deploy it due to, as we said, disaggregation in application space. On this side of things, there's no how, there's technology and most of them are already using V6. What's also interesting, most of them don't do fabric-based overlays. So there is no need for V6 VXLAN. There's no need for support for overlay, not overlay, underlay for V6 overlay, right? In most cases, it is either flat space or hot bay overlays. So, so they're, they just, they're just routing, whole, it, right? Yeah, right. exactly. They yeah. ignore all EVP and V6 story, right? If we look at regular enterprises, a lot of people are asking for V6. Very few are actually using it. So you always see questions, is it going to work? Uh, what's supported, what's not supported? They ask about how does vendor silicon do V6? When are we going to support with six, uh, with VX one? But practically, I see very few deployments. So they they understand it's there, it's needed, but I don't think there's still critical point where they, yeah, there's, there's you not know, push right. to deploy. Yes, yeah, there's so hesitancy. They, they, they'll uh, probably you know procrastinate till they cannot anymore.
3: <laughs> we, we, always, we always make the distinction between the greenfield and brownfield deployments. And I mean, obviously, if you're already running a data center and you've, you've got a lot of operational models in place to deal with IPv4, the shortage of address resources, then, you know, maybe it's not, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to try to shoehorn IPv6 into that environment. But I mean, if you're building a new data center, it seems obvious to us here at IPv6 Buzz that, <laughs> that you would use IPv6 you know, in a greenfield deployment or, or try to figure out how to take advantage of some of the things that you mentioned earlier, Jeff, about why IPv6, you know, works well in the data center.
1: Yeah, so I, I really wanted to bring up this case. Actually, I'm working on right now. I'm working with uh, Tom Herbert and uh, Tom, uh, from Yandex to actually to present it in routing working group and upcoming ITF and start talking about more. I think it's really cool. So when we compare IPv4 to IPv6, the only way to change entropy in V4 is actually transport layer. because As such, V4 doesn't have any mutable field that could be used to change entropy. So in order to do so, we introduce VXLAN and a whole bunch of other overlays that use UDP as transport, and that would allow us to use 16-bit of source ports to provide additional entropy. Mm-hmm. Guess what? In IPv6 world, things are different. We've got the native ability to provide entropy. We've got 20-bit space that could be changed. So now we are going to TCP. What happens when there's an outage in the fabric? If not a link goes down, that's all good. We've got BFD, we've got BGP that converts reasonably fast. So we'll just reroute traffic with very few packets lost, hopefully. However, this is not the worst case. Worst case is when you drop few packets every second, so called great failures. So, in this case, especially if your radix is not very large, performance goes south completely. TCP really dislikes drop packets. So, there is a TCP artifact called RTO or Timeout that is kicked every time no app is received. Eventually, when too many apps have been not received the session, the sender will stop sending. So, what's important here in data centers when we're out, we use the CMP. They're pretty much nothing else unless you do something like really non-IP technologies, right? Any IP-based data center today would use five sample load balancing with IPv4. Looking at with six, things are a bit different. We see most vendors by default doing six tuple load sharing. So it's usual suspects such as a piece of destination and uh, layer for information. Now we also use additional piece of entropy, namely the piece that has been designed to specifically identify the flow and piece that doesn't exist in before.
0: And so what, what, is, what is it just for folks that may not be aware What's the advantage of the entropy within within the, the that, that additional flow portion? What's the advantage that you get with entropy in terms of in terms of a data center and, and moving traffic from one side to the other?
1: So uh, if you look at silicon, when we have wide radics are actually more than one, and this is what we do in data center, right? We have number of equidistant connections, and every destination could be reached over every of this connections. In least fine topologies, per definition, they're equidistant similar. Cost, so practically you could use any path from source to the destination. Right, and uh, in uh, before we don't have concept of flow labels. In MPLS we did introduce the concept of uh, entropy labels, which is topic for another discussion. In before we don't have such entity, so you are always limited by source IP, destination IP, and therefore information. Right. Practically, if you want to change your hash, you should either or should you could either reload the switch or change bits in overlay because you cannot really change uh, bits on your original payload. You cannot change mm-hmm. payload and such, right? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. That's a that's a no no. <laughs> so, let's go back to the whole solution. So, with before, if you start intermittently dropping packets, there's nothing you really can do you won't even figure out what's going on before you troubleshoot for hours. So what happens with the 6 Same situation, you've got a link, to the drops packet here and there, so you see RTO. In 2015, uh, Tom Herbert, back then, Facebook, I believe, committed a patch into kernel that would look into RTO and change flow label accordingly.
0: It's a feedback loop that basically exactly. allows you to- Yeah, yeah.
1: It's completely dynamic. It doesn't require any interaction with humans. And it does exactly what needs to be done on large fabric. It provides additional entropy and ability to use different links. So imagine you've got 16-way CMP, and one of the links is dropping the traffic. So in V4, you would keep dropping it. In V6, with this feature, when you drop a packet, there's no app for it the sending host will change value of flow label. So when the sender that's connected to the link that dropping will receive the packet, potentially it will hash it differently because one of the keys into hashing packet is different. So suddenly you'll be taken another path. And this is completely dynamic, no interruption with user. So it gives you ability to build self healing fabric. So you still have a link that's not working properly, right? But you would have all switches that are connected to this link potentially sending traffic over other puzzles available. And the wider your radix is, the more chance there is, you're actually not going to hit the problem. So there was a presentation at NextHop this last year showing that when you just shut down one link, you see application going down or underperforming in about 25 to 40% when you use this uh, variability in flow labels, it's pretty much a measure below 1%. Wow. So the advantage is huge. And you can only do it if you use with six and data center. But from my perspective, that would be huge advantage and another reason to use APV6.
0: That's really unique. That's very interesting. And, and, and I think, I guess that begs the second question, which is a follow-up, which is how do you know that that link isn't performing after after this is dynamically happening? I mean, you still need to go out and fix that link, right? I guess you just notice it because there's no traffic happening over it anymore. <laughs> I, yeah, I so know.
1: this kind of secondary. <laughs> what you want to do, you want to react
0: fast. Right, you want to react fast, but then you still need to be able to detect and figure out why that thing is having issues. But I guess, but I guess that's for uh, that's for another smart person
1: to figure out. <laughs> yeah, so traceability and observability in this case is key, and right. eventually you should be able to figure out that something wrong is with the switch, right? By consuming some stream telemetry, by using new technologies such as invent telemetry, which mm-hmm. actually gives you proof of transit and how long a packet in the queue within the switch so consuming this data should show you reasonably fast and clear the link on the switch optic bed i don't know fiber that went bad something is happening and you should be able to see this data and eventually maybe just shut down the link because as we said as long as we can black and white go and shut down link or shut down switch it's all okay we'll just hear out in in or uh, situations where you drop a few packets here and there.
2: And that ECMP technique would work whether using TCP or QUIC.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm yet to see Quick in data center outside of actually people who design QUIC, but uh, absolutely.
2: I was surprised the other day. I, I opened up Wireshark and I looked at QUIC and IPv6, and I was surprised that by using Google Chrome browser, I was using actually quite a bit of QUIC over the Internet. Already,
1: well, so quick is there, and you know, there's no way back. We'll, we are going to see more, <laughs> more.
3: Yeah, for sure. Just like IPv6, right? There's no way back.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that yeah, look, I think quick look at quick has an advantage. Uh, uh, look at route size statistics published every month. Every month, there's more and more. So eventually, you know, we'll crawl there.
0: Yeah, Chrome browser is definitely pushing quick adoption for at accelerated rate, and I think I think we're going to see and that's that's going to be part of you probably one of the fastest adoptions of a of a net new standard protocol out there is probably going to be quick just because of because of that behavior and just how you know how ubiquitous chrome is for for end user scenarios but that's just my opinion i don't know i don't know why everyone yeah and about i it.
1: think quick is a great example how industry can work with atf and build something that works that addresses uh needs and issues that would have been there if it would have been single vendor implementation. I'm really happy about how quick developed people from Google fastly although they did amazing job.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's, it's definitely cool. I, I, I've i got to answer the question, maybe maybe it's just a bigger thought about where V6 is at and since we're talking about it from a data center perspective because you know, Dan Wing, Andrew Yotango, they wrote happy eyeballs to address sort of the end user visibility problem around v6 and v4 to v6 transition, right? But but is that actually having any sort of negative impact within the data center in terms of in terms of having that built into so many operating systems and OSs that you would just prefer to just sort of be sort of binary, either V4 or V6, I think, in, in many use cases in data center versus having something that just sort of fails that way. There's too many soft fail. Sort of scenarios in between with happy eyeballs. Do you, do you see that? Do you feel that's that maybe as we start transitioning to more and more V six that it's going to take a harder rule to say like you know we, we don't want happy eyeballs necessarily operating here. We just want to do V six or we just want to do V four.
1: That's an interesting question. So on the kind of access network, you see a lot of variability, and hence all happy eyeballs think really hides problems. Yeah, exactly. One doesn't work; you switch to another. In data center, given the amount of resources, bandwidth, and everything else, there's very little of that, if you prefer v6, there's very little unless something really broken that you will fall back on before another way around. So, from what I see, if application meant to work over v6, very seldom would it fall back to v4.
0: Well, and um, I think there's I think there's use cases where you actually want your v4 to be known and you want to run it as a v4 over v6, right? You want islands of v4 and yeah. you want to you run v4 as a service on top of your v6. So you really don't want them failing in the same way that Absolutely. like you mentioned in a client access network. I think we want more yeah. descript and, and very you know understood network behaviors. So I think for many folks, data center, it sort of makes sense to be like either your v4 or your v6. And dual stack is sort of a weird. We've always talked about dual stack as a tr- as this transition method and everything else, but you know, as we start to talk to more and more folks, and, this, and especially with the federal government with the new OMB mandate around V6 only, it starts to make sense to just have that V6 only discussion and say everything else is just a service on top, right? It's just an overlay, right? Do fee for as an overlay for whatever VRF that you need to provide it and, and capped it and you know, route it out someplace else where you're going to need it. And I don't know if you're seeing that as a discussion within sort of data center deployments at these and, you know at these bigger locations where you're sort of talking about v6 only, I imagine they're doing v4 as a
1: service on top, right? For the Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And actually Yandex that actually described the flow label use case, uh, they're using V6 natively and doing V4 v4 service. All right. So, well, for getting out of data center for a second, I just wanted our listeners to let know there's really good work driven by Juan Mishra from Verizon on the routing of v4 over v6. So, since he is a vendor and actually a pretty powerful one, he managed to gather all of us, you know, <laughs> vendor people, and test and commit what's working, what's not working. So, it's a document called IPv4 and LRI with IPv6 Next Hub use cases, I would really advise you to read. We have uh, recently adopted documents, document working group document. It describes in, detail, in details how to deploy v6 only, how to deploy before and arise IPv6 Next hop, what works, what doesn't, and every vendor actually provides their accounts. We've got people from Juniper, Arista, Nokia, Huawei, and Cisco. Wow, that's... So very seldom you see someone you know, who could get all the vendors working together and beat them up to actually commit and stuff. So <laughs> go read it. it's a really cool document. Oh,
0: cool. That's awesome. Well, may, maybe that allows us to pivot a little bit to talk about, because I'm sure segment routing comes up as part of the discussion, especially around the data center side in v6. And what, what's the story there? Is there anything interesting to talk about? Or, 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 or we, do we park that off in the corner and let the segment routing folks sort of
1: figure out what's <laughs> happening? <laughs> so let's talk a few minutes. Uh, what's segment routing? It's really ability to abstract notion of IP address and have a what we call set in networking. So a metadata that defines packet behavior could be just routing, could be some options taken in it. So in MPLS, very straightforward. The SRMPLS is control plane that provides binding from prefix to seed or label in this case. So see the labels are the same in this case. And then you build stack of seats. And if you use them for transport, you just pop them as you traverse. If you use them for something else, you use top label for transport and next following label for action. For example, your action could be, if you run on l VPN, look up next hop of the route and send it to C. It could be load share traffic, send it to firewall, drop it. So semantics of labels are dynamically defined. They're locally significant. Right. So this is in PLS. It's very straightforward. It's mainstream technology. I think if anyone today deploys in PLS, in 95% of the cases, they're not going to deploy LDP, probably in 70% of the cases, they're not going to deploy RSVP. SR is there, it's working. And uh, mainstream. So as service six is somewhat different. So in service six we use or abuse the fact that IPv6 addresses are longer and you can split it in couple of parts. So SRV6 splits address into Locator, which is the address of the device, plus additional 64 bits that could be further split into functions, into some well-defined entities. And if you look at uh, Ayana, there's more and more functions that are hard coded which I don't particularly like, but that's another discussion. Uh, to particular functions. So for example, you see particular subpart of address, you call it DX4, and it really means this particular hard coded function. For example, look up next hop, terminate it into VRF, send it to VLAN, or so forth. So SRV6 works in somewhat different way. When you look at size of the packet, and this is where real problem becomes kind of obvious, MPLS labels are much smaller. It's 20 bit plus some cellular data. In the service six, we use complete. 28 bit. Yeah. IPv4 128 bit IPv6 address to provide additional seats. So eventually if you need to do traffic engineering and traffic engineering is done by exposing additional Uh, information which hops are the next hop-hop, right? Right. Uh, Suddenly, your control plane information, your data plane headers are larger than the data itself. You know, if you're running 100 gig backbone in immediate US, probably you're okay with it. If you're thinking about more remote locations, if you're thinking about locations where you actually use, I don't know, microwave and not fiber, if you use about, if you think about voice over LTE, where your packets are really small, so right. if your packet is two hundred bytes, but the header on top of it is six hundred, I would argue it's not very efficient use of bandwidth. <laughs> yeah, and that's so. There's lots of discussions about compression, uh, different solutions coming from different vendors. So there's many solutions vendors. At this point in time, I would say Service Six is still under development. At their deployments. Vendors push the gear, they deploy services. But from my perspective, it requires more development. It requires finally to figure out how we are going to compress it. And there's design team in ITF Spring Working Group that's looking into it. It has a variety of vendors and a bunch of operators. So I have some hopes that something useful will come out. Practically, we are still not...
0: Yeah, and, and I think that's okay. I think it's one of those things where I, th- I think there's a lot of misinterpretation about where segment routing actually is and sort of the development and maturity around it. And, and SRV6 fits as part of that category too.
1: And so if I may add one use case here, and I think it's actually pretty cool. There's a company line in Japan that uses SRV6-based host overlays. In other words, you impose SRV6 labels on the host and you use this additional space and potentially TLV that could be within it uh, to provide additional metadata. So when you change information between different hosts, now you can provide additional data with regards to details internal to the host. So from a data center fabric perspective, it just IPv6, eh, they switches don't know that is SR with 6 inside, right? because it's represents a APV6 address, So in this case, there's only a single header, so you don't need anything else. Right. And now you don't need an overlay technique, such as, right. you need, just... for example, that VMware is using to exchange a lot of metadata between hosts. You encode this metadata within the packet itself and it give just... you the ability to really understand what sender wants receiver to do when it receives the packet besides just terminating it. Right, and it's just routing natively, so it's just a native address and yeah. L three the whole
0: way through. So there's no, there's no. You're going to have that header, that overhead anyway, regardless of that use case. So
1: yeah, right. that makes think,
0: sense. Yeah. Is there other things uh, besides maybe segment routing? Is there other things that sort are of unique around the V six side that you've seen data centers that have been able to sort of leverage? I mean, I have a, I have a few crazy ideas myself around around how some of this can be leveraged up. But I, I wanted to see if you had any, had any um, on your side in terms of other areas that maybe V6 lends itself well to, to data center.
1: So uh, actually, not crazy. What I'm really happy to see that we are getting on par, because you know, ipv 6 has been this poor brother nobody wanted for a long time. Now we see features that are comparable. There are obviously gaps in every vendor's implementation I've seen. When you start talking with six, you poke deeper and suddenly something isn't working. But stuff is being fixed, and you know the more people run it, the more people test it in production, so we say right. right. So stuff is being fixed. and uh, in Upstra, we have number of customers actually run the six. And uh, I'm really happy to see that normalization, I mean, not the cooler use cases, but just getting on par with before and being able to replace before without even noticing it, especially from underlay perspective just switch before off with six will work as is with all the services in top no that is cool
0: i've had this crazy idea for a long time it's sort of similar to what scott's point was of writing the 64 that if you hand the 64 off the hosts right that you can even do unique things for folks that need like unique transaction id numbers because like to burn through a 64 like even if you're doing 10 million a second and you never reuse a single address ever it's gonna take you. Know, what was it? Fifty-eight thousand plus years <laughs> to burn through your slash sixty-four, so you can do some really unique things. It's I think it's a harder harder problem probably to f- solve the state related issue of just you know how much how much you're overturning you're turning over addresses. But if it's a sixty-four and you're just routing it, it doesn't really matter, right? You just forward it off to the host and let it
1: be done. Exactly. Going back to container, that's exactly the model, right? You have right. got a pod that has definitely more than one endpoint that needs to be addressed and. I've seen networks that leak 20, 30, 30,000 32s for every <laughs> container. Right. You can, you can like, just why? imagine how this goes,
0: right? Yeah, no, it's horrible, right? You're just like, why can't we just route stuff straight to it and be done with it? Exactly.
1: And... In this case, it's so native to V6, just allocate a uh, shorter prefix and be done with it. Yep. Your routing yep. table is small. It's stable. You hide the instabilities or dynamicity. You are done and it's beautiful. It works
0: yeah i'm 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 right there with you I, de- I definitely think it solves a lot of a lot of issues and 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 the nice thing about it is if you if you have a, a proper you know address plan with enough sort of you know need requirements you can uh, in terms of requests on the address space side you you definitely can do this at scale and and not feel like you're going to be constrained in any way in terms of what you can build out so i think that's an important point because uh, data center you know you can in traditional v4 data center this has been the hardest problem right is is getting down to the Oh, how many hosts am I operating? And oh, how many things, and like getting down to the, the, you know, okay, we're going to go past a slash 24 and v4, right? We're down to like, you know, slash 29s because we only have this many hosts that fit this security profile that fit in here. And like, you're just down to these weird. You know, boundaries of trying to carve everything up for for these, you know, especially for enterprise networks around these limited sets of resources. And in V6, we just don't care. It's like take your sixty four and
3: go do what you need to. <laughs> yeah, that's it's like a layer eight problem in that regard. That you know, you've yeah. got you you have like the engineering folks can see oh there's all these great applications and we can just burn V6 addresses and there's there's no risk because of the the scale that we're talking about as we just mentioned. But it's it's convincing everyone operationally that that's the sane thing to do. You know that that's the a, a long term challenge. To, to it's like you've got the space to use, you can use it in any any way, and then the engineering side to solve any number of problems. But uh, you have to get to that point where you're like willing to 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 just see that space be used in that way. And and frankly, there's a lot of folks you know that that just aren't quite there yet in the enterprise space. Yeah, they freak out. <laughs> That's what I say.
1: <laughs> but I would add to that that while it was kind of optional for a very long time now with further application disaggregation, Kubernetes treating IPv6 as first-class citizen. If you don't know what v6 is, you better get and learn because it's coming. There are finally business reasons to use it and there are technology to support it. So there's absolutely no reason and no way to stay away saying, you know, it's not my generation. I'll probably retire before you aren't. And it's coming this way over here.
0: Can't agree more. I mean, Jeff, maybe we maybe we uh, sort of wrap things around sort of talking about the last section, which is really about how software automation is actually going to make deploying v6 that much easier. Because I think one of the great fears with v6, right, for many people is, is not understanding it very well and not understanding how they're going to get it deployed across their network, their fabric, their their deployment and infrastructure. And a lot of the work that you've been working on for the last few years has all been about, you know, software automation and and network architecture and how to, you know, sort of ease the deployment and and guarantee that you're going to get the right sort of outcomes. And I think V6 lends itself well for being one of those things that actually gets deployed that way. And I don't don't know what your feelings are about that, but if you you feel a similar way or not.
1: From automation perspective, if you build it right, it doesn't make significant amount of difference. If your V4 automation is right, bringing with 6 wouldn't take a lot of time and actually pretty straightforward. If you just start, I think starting with with 6 is actually much better and allows you to build backwards to V4, which is much more limited and somewhat more straightforward because it's better understood there are much more operational practices how to do it. Right. Right, yeah. so... Specifically product I've been working on, V6 has always been treated as first-class citizen. So whether you deploy before or V6, there's absolutely no difference. Practically, if everything you do is V4, you really need to probably sit for 30 minutes and think, what is it you want to achieve with V6? And ideally, you should go all in because there's no way back.
0: You heard it here today, everyone. All in. (laughs) And that's what Jeff
1: says. Why wouldn't you?
0: I, yeah, we well, yeah. You're. I think you're asking the wrong set of innovations on the other side <laughs> we, of the line. We, we're in,
3: we're in violent agreement here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I I completely I completely agree with you, Jeff. I mean, and 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 for me, I think that that once you once you're able to figure out how to get the software automation side to work with V6, then your life becomes so much easier in terms of supporting and maintaining what's happening in that environment. And I think. Uh, I think you have a set of guardrails that really prevent you from having uh, some of the problems that I've seen others other institutions that try to roll out V6 in a more organic way. I guess I should I should say that uh, perhaps uh, gives them a set of challenges that uh, they might not have to deal with.
3: Well, I would, I, so the only thing I'll add to that is that, th- that we need to make sure that we reiterate that if you if you if you have your you're offering an automation tool and your examples don't include V6 or you've neglected V6, then please correct that.
1: And eventually, it will affect your business because people want with six. I mean, as weird as it sounds, people do want with six finally. If your product doesn't offer it, you're at a disadvantage. Mm -hmm. So make sure you support with six. The better you support it, the better you can address the market, the better channels you're actually selling.
3: Yes, absolutely. And that support, it's like that we've seen this and it's frustrating. The support's there but the documentation doesn't really convey that in, in an effective way. And, and, and I'm not really sure why that happens, but it does happen frequently enough that, that we like to call it out. So
1: uh, I'll share a few links after the discussion. So I've been trying to do some education for quite some time. The draft I previously mentioned talks about uh, before we visit hop. there's another draft we published that describes, actually talks about how to use with 6 with SS, very useful document, very readable. It, it's actually meant for operators and people who are using it. So uh, I'll share the link to it. Oh, fantastic.
0: Really appreciate that. Well, unlike V6, we run out of space for this podcast. So thanks to today's guest, uh, Jeff Tensura. Uh, how can audience how can the folks follow you on the internet? What's, what's the best way to do that?
1: The so best place is LinkedIn. I'm also, usually I publish something on LinkedIn and then it Gets automatically copied into Twitter. So on Twitter, I'm at uh, Jayton Sura on LinkedIn. Just look up my name. I'll be happy to connect right. with you.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Well, you can reach the IPv6Buzz podcast on Twitter. We're at IPv6Buzz. You can also hit up each one of us on Twitter too. Uh, Tom is at IPv6Tom, Scott is at Scott Hoog, and I'm at E. Horley. Thanks for listening to IPv6Buzz. You can find us on the Packet Pushers or any of your favorite podcast apps. Just search for IPv6Buzz. If you like the show, Please give us a rating on iTunes. I mean, hopefully you're listening on Spotify too. And if you like the podcast, we really recommend you check out Heavy Networking, Day2Cloud, and Network Break. They're all great technical content over at packetpushers.net. So long and until next time, we'll see you on the internet. The IPv6 internet, that is.
1: Thanks for listening to IPv6 Buzz, a podcast devoted to truth, justice, and 128 bits of address space. IPv6.